Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The event we're analyzing today is one of the worst tragedies of the 1800s, the Irish Potato Famine. Let me start with a disclaimer. I am of Irish descent. My mother's parents came from Italy, but my father's family all came from Ireland. So if I sound somewhat pro-Irish and fairly pissed off about what happened, it's because I am. Everybody's heard of the Great Irish Potato Famine, but most people don't know the details. I think the general concept of it is that the potato crop went bad, people were starving, and so a lot of them moved to America. It is so much worse than that. It was a true catastrophe. In fact, Ireland has never completely recovered. Let's start with some numbers. The population of the island of Ireland just before the potato famine hit in 1845 was approximately 8.2 million. That was the entire island. There was no Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland in those days. The island is now split into the Republic of Ireland, which is an independent country, and Northern Ireland, which is the northeast corner of the island and is a part of the United Kingdom. The split of the island is an unfortunate result of when Ireland gained its independence from Britain and the British held on to the northeast portion of the island. It's led to a lot of problems over the past century. Anyway, getting back to the population figures. The current population of the Republic of Ireland is around 5.1 million. Current population of Northern Ireland is over 1.8 million. So the population of the entire island island of Ireland is now somewhere between 6.9 and 7 million people. That means that over 170 years after the potato famine, the population on that island is still about 16% less than it was in 1841. Over 170 years and the population still has not recovered. So let's set the scene for Ireland in the early 1840s. I don't have time to go through an entire history of Ireland, which is mostly tragic and infuriating. But I do have to give you some background so you can understand why this crop failure of the mid-1840s devastated the population. Please keep in mind that this is a very brief and general overview of Irish history. In the 1800s, this was one of the poorest countries on earth. To make the condition more appalling... Ireland was situated right next to the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world at the time, Great Britain. Officially, Ireland was not an independent country. England first invaded its smaller neighbor, Ireland, in the late 1100s. The Irish had their own language. Most people say, oh yeah, I know that, it's Gaelic. It's not. The native language is called Irish. Over the centuries, the English increased their control over Ireland. The Irish language was essentially stamped out and English became the official language. By the Middle Ages, the English were only controlling an area around Dublin known as the Pale. That's spelled P-A-L-E. That's where that term comes from of something being beyond the Pale. That meant beyond the area controlled by the English. Beyond the Pale meant something wild or outrageous. In the 1600s, there were two large-scale attempts to crush any Irish independence and turn Ireland into a full British colony. 
And I'm saying British now instead of English because the first colonization attempt occurred during the reign of King James, and he was king of both England and Scotland. Officially, he was known as King James VI of Scotland and King James I of England. England and Scotland did not officially unite until the Acts of Union were passed in 1707, which officially created the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Of course, Wales was thrown into this United Kingdom and nobody asked the Welsh how they felt about it. Under King James, the British decided to really colonize the island of Ireland. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because when you hear of the King James Bible, that's the version created under the auspices of King James I of England. Traditionally, there were four regions of Ireland called Ulster in the north, Connaught in the west, Leinster in the east, and Munster in the south. My apologies if I'm mispronouncing any of these Irish words. Mostly, I have just read them and have not heard them actually pronounced. The British started their colonization of the island in the north, the region of Ulster. That is the part of Ireland which is closest to the island of Great Britain. This program was called the Plantation of Ulster. And that term plantation does not mean what it meant in the pre-Civil War United States South. In Ireland at that time, the term plantation meant colony. The British were colonizing Ireland. Most of the planters, meaning colonizers, came from Scotland and Northern England. They took over most of the land from the native Irish. The colonizers were English-speaking and Protestant, replacing the natives who spoke Irish and were Catholic. This is where the Troubles, as it's called in Northern Ireland, began. People in the U.S. think of it as a religious dispute, Catholics versus Protestants. It's not really about religion. It's about natives versus the invaders and their descendants. When people talk about the Protestants of Northern Ireland, these people are defined as being loyal to the British crown. Essentially, they consider themselves British. Of course they think of themselves as British. They are the descendants of the people who came from Great Britain to try to colonize Ireland in the early 1600s. When people talk about the Catholics of Northern Ireland, these are the descendants of the native Irish. So when I talk about the two groups, I'm not going to refer to them as the Catholics and Protestants. They are the native Irish on one side and the British settlers along with their descendants, the Anglo-Irish, on the other side. When Ireland became independent in 1922, most of Ulster remained with the United Kingdom and is now known as Northern Ireland. It's part of the United Kingdom and the rest of the island is the Republic of Ireland. I said earlier that there were two large attempts to crush independence by the British in the 1600s. The first was the plantation of Ulster I just described. The second was the conquest of Ireland by Oliver Cromwell. Without going off on a very difficult tangent, Cromwell was running Great Britain in the 1650s after King Charles I had been executed in the English Civil War. Cromwell was not the king. He was titled the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth. Essentially, he was a military dictator. There was opposition to Cromwell in Great Britain, but Cromwell increased his popularity throughout Britain by going to Ireland and brutally establishing his authority. We don't have any exact figures, but it's estimated that approximately 618,000 Irish people died as a result of fighting Cromwell's invading army and the resulting disease and starvation. 
and that's out of a population of approximately one and a half million. If those numbers are close to being accurate, this means that over 41% of the population died as a result of the Cromwell conquest in the 1640s and 1650s. Let's put that into perspective. Current population of the U.S. is around 330 million. If somebody invaded this country and caused the death of around 41% of America's population, that would mean the deaths of around 135 million Americans. So when people wonder why the Irish have never been too crazy about their British neighbors, maybe it's because of incidents like these. And in case you're thinking, let it go, that occurred in the 1600s. It's true it was the 1600s, but it's not like things got much better over the next three centuries until the Irish finally got their independence. As a result of the Cromwell conquest, most of the land of Ireland was confiscated and given to British settlers. The remaining native Irish landowners were transplanted to the province of Connaught. That's the western part of Ireland and had by far the worst farmland. The native Irish who owned farms were not only located on poor farmland, these farms were also way too small. Over the years, the land had been subdivided over and over to a point where approximately 25% of all of the Irish-owned farms were only between one and five acres, and approximately 40% of the farms owned by the native Irish were less than 15 acres. It was tough to produce enough crops to feed a family, let alone any surplus crops, to purchase the other necessities of life on such small farms. Also, since most of Ireland was now owned by the British settlers, the native Irish were mostly tenant farmers. They were essentially peasants living in mud huts. Yeah, you heard me. Their houses were made out of mud with thatched roofs. The living conditions were just horrible. By 1800, things were still very bad for the Irish, at least the native Irish. By this time, there had been several generations of the original British invaders living in Ireland. These groups were known as the Anglo-Irish. They became a ruling class known as the Protestant Ascendancy. This minority controlled most of Ireland. They owned most of the land. The laws held down the native Irish often simply designated as Catholics, as follows. 1. They were excluded from most public offices. 2. They were also barred from membership in Parliament. 3. They could not marry members of the Protestant ascendancy. 4. They could not own firearms. 5. They were excluded from legal professions and the judiciary. Actually, there's a lot more of these restrictions referred to as the penal laws but you get the drift. In 1800, laws were passed called the Acts of Union, which went into effect on New Year's Day, 1801. These laws created the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Yay, everything's good for the Irish now because they're on an equal footing with the British. Oh wait, I just checked my notes. I was mistaken. Things were still very bad for the native Irish. This was essentially Great Britain annexing Ireland. Under the new United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, the Irish Parliament was abolished and Ireland was given MPs, meaning members of Parliament, in the British Parliament in London. They were also given some seats in the House of Lords in the British Parliament. Essentially, this changed nothing for the vast majority of the Irish people. They were still being ruled by the British in London 
or the British descendants in Ireland known as the Protestant Ascendancy. The native Irish were not really represented. Okay, I've set the stage politically. What about agriculturally? Why so many potatoes? Why were they so reliant on potatoes? The potato was introduced to Ireland more than 100 years before the famine. If you listened to my episode about Christopher Columbus, you will recall that I discussed how one of the biggest impacts Columbus had on Europe is the fact that the Spanish brought back the potato from the New World. Potatoes drastically changed Europe. There were two main reasons for this. One, potatoes will grow in a lot of places that would be considered poor farmland. Two, potatoes produce more calories per acre than wheat, which had been the staple crop that was primarily feeding Europe before Columbus first set sail. On average, potatoes produce over twice the number of calories per acre as wheat. So what does that mean? Well, roughly it means that the same size agricultural region can now support more than twice the population. This resulted in a massive population expansion in Europe, and nowhere was the effect bigger than in Ireland. The population of Ireland skyrocketed in a large part because of the potato. If you were a very poor tenant farmer and had bad farmland, with potatoes, you could grow enough food to feed your family and to pay the rent to the landlord. Remember earlier when I said that the native Irish landowners were moved by the British to the western part of the island where the farmland was very poor? This meant that even the people who owned land had trouble surviving without potatoes. Some people in the 21st century look at the Irish from the mid-1800s as fools to be so reliant on one crop. This wasn't by choice. They may not have been happy eating potatoes morning, noon, and night every day, but at least they could survive on that one crop. There were other foods in Ireland, but the staple for the diet of the vast majority of the dirt-poor farmers was the potato. The pathogen which brought so much misery to millions of people is called Phytothora infestans. If I'm mispronouncing that term, I'm sorry, I'm not a scientist and certainly not a botanist. For years, there was a big debate over the origin of this fungus. It was known that it came from the Western Hemisphere, but it was the dispute as to whether it came from the Andes Mountains or from Central Mexico. For all of you in South America, you are off the hook. Scientists have now determined that this pathogen came from Central Mexico. The blight traveled from Mexico to continental Europe, and then this scourge arrived in Ireland in 1845. Since Phytothora infestans is so difficult to say, I'm just going to refer to it as the blight. The blight spread rapidly throughout Ireland in 1845, leaving in its wake inedible black potatoes. In that first year, approximately one-third of the crop was destroyed. The next year, 1846, somewhere over 75% of the potato crop was ruined. The blight continued through 1850. All right, let's talk casualties. During the famine from 1845 to 1850, approximately 1 million people died. Obviously, a million deaths is an awful lot, but it's even more tragic when you realize that this represented about an eighth of the population of the whole island. That would be like the U.S. suffering around 41 million deaths in a five-year span due to starvation. Obviously, the deaths were the most tragic aspect of the famine. But in addition to losing about 1 million people to starvation, 
Ireland also lost about one and a half million to immigration, mostly to the U.S. between 1845 and 1855. Combining the approximately one million dead and the approximately one and a half million who fled the country due to the appalling conditions, in about a decade, Ireland lost almost a third of its population. Can you imagine if the U.S., lost over 100 million people in a 10-year span due to starvation and essentially forced immigration. And I say forced immigration because it was to avoid literally dying of malnutrition. So why are the Irish and those of us of Irish descent still so bitter about a natural catastrophe from over 170 years ago? You can't be mad at nature, right? If an earthquake or a tsunami hits, people don't get mad at the earth, but people do get upset with those in power who make matters worse. When I set the scene for you earlier, I described how Ireland was controlled by the British in the 1840s. Technically, it's not true. As I explained earlier, starting in 1801, the two islands of Great Britain and Ireland were supposedly an integrated country the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. But this was a farce. The vast majority of people in Ireland wanted to be independent. They did not want to be a subsidiary of the United Kingdom. How about the British? Did they view the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland as one big happy family? Absolutely not. They didn't view the Irish peasants as their fellow countrymen. If millions of people on the island of Great Britain were at risk of starving to death, the government in London would not throw up their hands and say, oh, well, what are you going to do? They would have saved those millions who were starving. So let's take a look at how the British government handled this crisis in Ireland. In 1845, Nassau Sr., he was a lawyer and economist for the British crown, was quoted as saying that the famine would not kill more than one million people, and that would scarcely be enough to do any good. That is a harsh quote. It's true, this was simply his own opinion. Nassau Sr. was simply a government advisor. But the advocates of Nassau Sr. state that the quote was not as harsh as it seems. Mr. Sr. was not proposing a deliberate genocide by the British government. The people who argue in favor of Nassau Sr. claim that what he meant was that even such a large reduction of the population would not solve the underlying economic problems of Ireland. Here's the problem. Those who defend Nassau Sr. don't put his quote into the context of the British thinking at the time. In the 1800s, Britain, as well as other countries, were following the theory of Thomas Malthus. He was another British economist. In 1798, Malthus published his theory in a book called An Essay on the Principle of Population. In short, his theory was this. When food production increased, it led to an increase in population. The population would increase until it overloaded the food supply. The result would be a famine, which was a natural way of lowering the population to a level that could be sustained by the available food. Malthus argued that people were the same as animals, that there was a limit which was called carrying capacity. Once the population exceeded the carrying capacity, that population could no longer be sustained and famine would naturally bring the population down to a natural equilibrium. 
When you consider that this so-called Malthus model was widely accepted by the British intellectuals in the 1800s, it becomes clear what Nassau Sr. meant by his infamous quote. The population in Ireland had to be reduced to a natural equilibrium. But Mr. Sr. did not believe that a million deaths would be enough to get back to a sustainable population. So, were Thomas Malthus and Nassau Sr. right in that this was simply nature's way of correcting the overpopulation in Ireland? Of course not. The Irish did not die from a lack of potatoes. They died from a lack of food in general. There was enough food available in Ireland... It just wasn't going to the people that needed it. In the 1840s, when the blight devastated the potato crop, the island of Ireland was still producing lots of wheat, oats, barley, beef, pork, poultry, and dairy products. The problem was that most of that food was being exported from the island over to Great Britain. The British government oversaw the removal of all of this food from Ireland. In 1845, more than 26 million bushels of grain were exported from Ireland to England. Granted, this was the normal occurrence. Most foodstuffs were exported out of Ireland and the Irish peasants lived on potatoes. But with the blight destroying the potato crop, it was outrageous that other agricultural products were still being exported out of Ireland over to Great Britain. And it wasn't just grains. The exports out of Ireland to Britain during the famine also included other vegetables like peas, beans, and onions, along with dairy products like milk and butter, as well as seafood like salmon, oysters, and herring, in addition to farm animals including horses. Let's talk about homelessness. Keep in mind that most of the land was owned by the Anglo-Irish. That was the Protestant minority that considered themselves British and not really Irish. They thought of themselves as separate from the native Irish. A large percentage of the landowners did not even live in Ireland. They lived in Britain and just had managers oversee the land for them in Ireland. When the potato crop failed, it meant that there was nothing to eat. But it also meant that the incredibly poor tenant farmers could not pay the rent. This led to mass evictions. These families were now not only dying of malnutrition, but these emaciated families were now also homeless. Unfortunately, we don't have exact figures, and I keep saying that these are estimates, but it's believed that approximately a half a million people were evicted from their homes during the famine years. Let's take a look at another British policy. One of the British policies that caused problems was a series of tariffs commonly referred to as the Corn Laws. The Corn Laws existed from 1815 through 1846. They were trade restrictions on imported food along with the heavy tariffs. By the way, a tariff is essentially a tax on imports. The idea was to make food from other countries, particularly from North America, more expensive than foods grown in the British Isles. The reason they were called the Corn Laws was because, in the 1800s, the British used the term corn to include actual corn, as well as all cereal grains like wheat, oats, and barley. The Corn Laws really helped the landed gentry of Great Britain and the Anglo-Irish of Ireland by driving up prices and profits. But those laws made food more expensive for the middle class and the working poor. To his credit, Prime Minister Robert Peel 
repealed the corn laws in 1846 to try to lower prices on food staples to try to help the Irish suffering from the potato famine. In the midst of this episode with so much misery, it's nice to present a fun fact. British policemen are called Bobbies. They got that name because that same person, Robert Peel, set up the first organized police service in London in 1829. All right, back to the tragedy. Instead of keeping the food produced in Ireland on the island to feed the starving masses, the British government began buying food from the United States and distributed it to the poor in Ireland. At least this provided some relief. Soup kitchens were set up in Ireland. Workhouses and public work projects, like building roads, were also set up, but they just were not nearly enough to avert the famine. To compound matters, in 1846, Robert Peel and the Conservatives were voted out of office and the Whigs took over Parliament. The Whigs believed in market forces. In 1847, the British government ended the soup kitchens. The man that the Whigs placed in charge of the Irish relief was named Charles Trevelyan. That name might sound familiar to anybody who's a fan of the rock group The Dropkick Murphys. My favorite song of theirs is their cover of a song called The Fields of Athenry. It's about a young Irishman who gets placed onto a prison ship and sent off to the prison colony of Botany Bay in Australia, all because he stole Trevelyan's corn so the young might see the morn. I wish I could play that part of the song for you, but I'd have to pay royalties. Anyway, Charles Trevelyan, the assistant secretary to His Majesty's Treasury, was a believer in the theories of Thomas Malthus. The famine was nature's way of thinning out the population to a sustainable amount. As Trevelyan so eloquently put it, the famine is an effective mechanism for reducing surplus population. Another great quote from the wonderful Charles Trevelyan about the famine is that it was the judgment of God to teach the Irish a lesson. I assume that the lesson was that it sucked to be living as landless peasants in the colony under the thumb of the British Empire. Okay, I've got to give you one more outstanding quote by the marvelous Charles Trevelyan. The real evil is not the physical evil of the famine, but the moral evil of the selfish, perverse, and turbulent character of the people. And of course, the people he was referring to were the Irish. It's always great to blame destitute people at the bottom of a colonial system that have essentially no rights for their own poverty. These were not people who had avenues for advancement, but were simply lazy and refused to take advantage of their opportunities. There were no opportunities to better their conditions. You can imagine what the fabulous Mr. Trevelyan decided to do. Essentially nothing. All of the food that was being exported out of Ireland to Great Britain continued. Actually, I should not say that he did nothing because he did do something. He cut back on the food that the British government was importing from America and distributing to the starving masses in Ireland. I keep talking about the people starving to death, but that's not the entire story. In a famine, people don't just die from starvation. Diseases run rampant. Many of the Irish died from cholera, typhus, and dysentery. Although it really was horrible having to leave their homeland, at least the people who emigrated had a happy ending, right? Wrong. The approximately one and a half million people who left Ireland during the famine years 
mostly went to the U.S. on what were called coffin ships. Why were they called that? Were the Irish just being overly dramatic? Unfortunately, no. The term coffin ships was regrettably very accurate. These were overcrowded and disease-ridden vessels. Passengers had limited access to water, and the food was often inedible. Many died crossing the Atlantic. Because so many of the passengers were diseased, they were often quarantined when they reached the U.S. and Canada. We don't have specific figures, but estimates are that mortality rates of approximately 30% were common. Think about that. It was common that almost a third of the passengers died on the trip from Ireland to North America. Now, it's true that not all of the ships had a 30% death rate. Many had much lower fatalities, but some ships had significantly higher, approaching 50%. Even after the famine subsided in 1850, there was still mass emigration from Ireland because of the poor conditions. So the population went from approximately 8.2 million in 1840, before the blight arrived in Ireland, down to a low of 4.2 million in 1930. Most of those people went to the U.S., Canada, and Australia. In just over a century, from 1820 to 1930, 4.5 million Irish moved to the United States. People generally know about the Irish potato famine, but most don't realize how incredibly devastating it was. And some think that it's a funny subject. Now you're thinking, who would think that losing a third of the Irish population would be humorous? The Stanford Cardinal Band certainly thought so. My wife and I were in Palo Alto on October 4, 1997, when Notre Dame played Stanford in football. Notre Dame getting its butt kicked in football that day was disappointing, but hey, that's just sports. What was offensive was the halftime show presented by the Stanford band. The subject of that halftime show was making fun of the Irish potato famine. The band and the public address announcer referenced the star of the hilarious subject matter, Seamus O'Hungry. The halftime show ended with the announcer stating that the Notre Dame team should actually be called the Blighting Irish. See how clever that was? Changing the name Fighting Irish to Blighting Irish in reference to the potato blight, which caused over a million deaths? Absolutely hilarious. I have to agree with the Stanford band that there's nothing funnier than a famine and a million deaths. Of course... There were no repercussions for the members of the Stanford band. In those days, the administrators of Stanford always just threw up their hands and portrayed themselves as completely unable to stop the band from doing anything offensive. Apparently, at Stanford University, the administration has absolutely no way to punish any of their students. Getting back to the famine and its legacy. When people wonder why the Irish are still not particularly fond of their British neighbors, you have to keep in mind that the natural tragedy of the potato blight and resulting famine was greatly compounded by the policies of the British government. And when some people argue that the British tried to alleviate the suffering, but that they were simply incompetent, I present this question. If a third of the population of Great Britain was literally starving to death, do you believe that the government in London 
would have just done the half-hearted measures they did in Ireland in the 1840s? Or do you think that they would have done a hell of a lot more and actually would have saved their own people from starvation? Well, that's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Ratings and likes greatly help with the algorithms that determine the placement of podcasts on particular apps. So if you're listening on a podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, which allow for ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. Please tell everybody you know about this podcast. Word of mouth is the best way to advertise. Check out my website, historyanalyze.com. You will find links to other podcast episodes, as well as all of the goodies for history geeks like This Day in History, book recommendations, historical sound bites, photos of some of the subjects of certain episodes, and links to supporting historical evidence. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.